Thank you for directing your internet connection to this sermon audio page for Christ Orthodox Presbyterian Church. You can learn more about Christ OPC by visiting our website at www.christopcatl.org. Christ OPC meets for worship each Sunday at 11 a.m. and 5.30 p.m. We'll be looking at Mark chapter 15 this morning. Mark chapter 15. We'll look especially at verses 33 through 39. Remember all of the context leading up to this, the sufferings of Christ, the mockery that he underwent. And here we come to the moment of his death in verses 33 through 39. Listen well as an act of worship to this God's word. Now when the sixth hour had come, There was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of those who stood by when they heard that said, Look, he is calling for Elijah. Then someone ran and filled a sponge full of sour wine, put it on a reed, and offered it to him to drink, saying, Let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come and take him down. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice and breathed his last. Then the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. So when the centurion who stood opposite him saw that he cried out like this and breathed his last, He said, truly, this man was the son of God. This is God's word. Please pray with me for his blessing upon it. Most merciful Father in heaven, we call upon you now to work mightily by your word and spirit among us. We pray that you would enlighten our eyes to the truth of these things, convince us that they are true and that they are for us, and humble us before you. Drive us out of ourselves and unto your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Conform us to him. Subdue us to his will. Strengthen us against sin and temptation. Build us up in grace. And gracious Father, please give us holiness and comfort as we walk on this pilgrim path unto the great and and glorious things you've prepared for us in the new heavens and the new earth. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Please be seated. This week, as I was reflecting on this passage of Mark, I was reminded of something peculiar, maybe, maybe this isn't peculiar, about myself as a young boy. Like, a, like many other children, I had fears and nightmares But one of the things that caused the greatest fear in me, and that actually was the subject of some of my fears, was the fear of what would come in the end times. I remember having a dream in which everyone else was being raptured up, and I was left behind. Or another dream in which I was shut out of uh, the doors of heaven. And, and, and all of this, no doubt, comes down to, on one level, a 
faulty view of the end times that I was getting from popular Christianity at the time. It was all around me, and also very vague notions of heaven. I remember having an existential crisis as a, as a little boy thinking about eternity. Um, and yet, for all the ways that this fear came in me because of false notions, I also think that the reason why I feared these things is because I had no concrete understanding of why I should be received in the last times. I had no sense of why I might be forgiven, why I might be an inheritor of heaven. And so God in his mercy really was terrifying me at what might lay before me if if I didn't reckon with, what, what, what is it that would cause me or you or any person to be worthy of God and of the inheritance of his son, to be worthy to be received at the last day? So any, any way that we're going to reckon with this question, what will become of you, what will become of me on that last day, has to come through, the answer has to come from what we see in this most central passage about the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a display of, of what is so central to Christ that when Paul talks about his preaching, which had many facets, he said, I have endeavored to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. This is at the very heart of our hope to understand this. And if we are going to have any confidence at the coming of the Lord, it will be by taking an interest in or having an interest in what we read about this morning and what we've already read about. And what we'll see in this passage is that the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was cast into our darkness that he might bring us into his light. Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, was cast into our darkness that we might be brought into his light. So as we look at this passage in verses 33 through 36, we'll start with the day of darkness. And then in verses 37 and 39, the dawning of the light. So first the day of darkness and then the dawning of the light. So of course this verse that we come to, verse 33, is in a long sequence of things. Christ has already uh, been put before a crooked court, uh, handled unjustly. He's been mocked by Romans and, and his own countrymen. He's been beaten. He's been scourged. He's, he's had a crown of thorns put upon his head. But then we come to a, a moment and a detail that we might easily pass over, which is darkness coming upon the land at the ninth, or sorry, the sixth hour. So the sixth hour is at noon. In the middle of the day, there's darkness over the whole land. And some people have, have presented different theories on why there's darkness, because heaven was grieved at what was going on, or God was angry at these people for what they were doing. 
But the, the, the clear referent to this darkness at noonday is from Amos chapter 8. In Amos chapter 8, as God is speaking about the day of his judgment upon covenant breakers who had despised his Sabbath, who had gained wealth deceitfully and exploited the poor, he says to them that on the day that he comes against them in his wrath, there would the sun would go down at noon and their feasting would be turned to mourning and as if the mourning for an only son. And remember here that this is in the middle of the Passover season for the nation of Israel. Surely this is a day of mourning in the midst of what they thought was feasting. And the sun is going down at noon. So what's, what's happening in this day of darkness coming over the land is a fulfillment of God's day of anger come upon them. But who is receiving this curse? Is it these evil men standing around the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, the one who cries out in anguish is not these men, but the Lord Jesus Christ. But again, you, as you think about this day of, uh, of destruction and darkness, it, it may remind you of another day very similar to this. Earlier in the scriptures, when darkness covered a land for three days, as opposed to three hours, Far back in the book of Exodus, during the plagues considered in chapters 7 through 11, as God is bringing all of this, this chaos onto the land of Egypt, gnats and flies and boils and hail and all these sorts of things coming to the day of darkness for three days and the death of the firstborn son. And what is all of this that the Lord was doing in that day in Egypt? He's showing his mighty power over all of creation and then he's withholding his ordering hand and allowing that land to turn back into a swirling chaos, almost like the first day uh, before God shined his light, like the waters churning on in the first verses of the book of Genesis. So because, because the Egyptians had refused to recognize God as the only true God, God had shown his power by taking away his order and letting them plunge into chaos. And all of that is what the day of the Lord is, the day of darkness come upon, uh, upon a people. And, and to think about this in another way, it's, it's as if all the gifts that God had poured out on creation in the beginning, he's despoiling the people of those gifts. All that they'd ever known of order, and, and delight and comfort is being withheld. But again, I, I already mentioned this. This day of darkness and this day of wrath, the people standing around the cross, they don't cry out. But the Lord Jesus Christ cries out as the darkness has come upon him. And he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because he understands that What's worst about this situation is not that he doesn't have comfort. It's not that, that the day of doom has come upon him, but ultimately this is the father's anger and his withdrawal. And so he cries out, quoting from Psalm 22. Some people have misunderstood what's going on here. They think that, well, 
Jesus says that God is forsaking him, so is, is there some sort of break in the Trinity between the Father and the Son? Or is there a break between the human nature of Christ and his divine person? Well, all of that's impossible. And if we attend to what's going on in Psalm 22, what's really happening is that God is taking away any help that, that Christ had ever known. Consider that all throughout his life, he had been preserved from the enemies, had been able to want, go in the wilderness and be preserved during all, all his, his temptation. And yet in these moments, all that help that he'd ever known of the Father's kindness is being withheld from him. There's no help for him. But when we put this in the context of the darkness, I think it's helpful for us to remember a, a picture that, that would have been recurring over and over again in the ancient Israelite mind from Numbers chapter 6. You've probably heard your ministers say this blessing a number of times. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you, be gracious to you, lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And that over and over again was a picture to the people of God of how God was going to make his face to shine upon them in favor and uphold them and take care of them. But here, Christ has a reversal of all of that. As if, as if for Christ, instead, he's hearing the Lord curse you. The Lord cast you off into utter darkness. Come under his wrath and curse. Have his face turned away from you and be thrown into tumult. That is all that's going on here for the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. He has no help from the Lord. He has no favor from the Lord upon him in this particular moment. And I, I don't know if you stop to think how scandalous this is. Consider in the book of Mark that at the very beginning of Christ's ministry, as he's being baptized, heaven is rent asunder, and we hear, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And yet here, he's treated as a covenant breaker, a cursed one. He's abandoned by God in the midst of this darkness, but as the story goes on, we hear that he's not only forsaken of God, but he's also forsaken by men. As he's hanging on the cross, men look at him. They misunderstand really what's going on here. They think he's asking for Elijah to come and deliver him, as some rabbinical traditions had suggested people who were suffering, righteous men might have. And they go up to him and they offer him the reed soaked, or the sponge with wine on it, stretched out on a reed to him. And this is very closely connected to what we read in Psalm 69, where the psalmist says that he looked for pity, he looked for mercy, and there was none but people to give him gall for food and sour wine to drink. And worse than that, these men look at him and they say, hold on a second, let's, let's give him a little bit of help here so that we can see if Elijah will come and help him, so that Jesus has just become for these people a spectacle. They're objectifying him. He's just something to ogle at. 
And I wonder whether or not you think it's worse that people hate you or worse that people treat you like you're not even a person anymore. And that's what they're doing to the Lord Jesus Christ. And and think for a moment as there were days of God's wrath upon the people of old. All throughout the Old Testament you can read about this, but most of the time we see these tastes of mercy that the people got to have. The Lord was still showing kindness to them in the midst of those great afflictions in the days of wrath. But for the Lord Jesus Christ, there was absolutely no pity for him, no mercy on any side. If we are going to make good use of this passage, we need to look at what Christ is undergoing in this moment and realize that this is what we deserve. Even the smallest sin of ours is against an infinite, perfect, holy God and deserving of what we've just read about. Deserving to be sent off into utter darkness because our sin is so hateful and odious to God. This is what we deserve. And just also imagine for a moment what would become of you if this day were to come upon you. The only image that I can really make sense of what this might be like, and I'm terrified of this idea, is drowning. And I think the reason why drowning is so so horrifying to us is because Since the day we were born, we've known breath. We've known solid ground. We've we've had something to hold on to, but when you're drowning, everything that you've ever expected in the norms of your life are, are, are taken away from you. And Christ here is undergoing a submersion into the wrath of God, and this is what would come upon us if we were to get what we deserve for our sin. So will this day come upon you? I already made reference to one day like this over the land of Egypt. And if you remember that story, there was darkness over the whole land except for one part. There was darkness everywhere but Goshen. The plagues came upon all the land except for upon God's own people. And why? Why is it that when the angel of death came to smite the sons of Egypt, that Israel was not also smited? Of course, it's because they had a substitute. They had a lamb that would take the wrath of God for them, blood marking their door. And that is what our substitute was doing on this dark day that we read about. In Mark, he was being cast out into the howling wilderness, into darkness, cast into the flood of God's wrath, drinking to the dregs the cup of woe. And I am deeply convicted by the fact that I have not looked upon my Savior doing this and seen just how much love he has for me. 
I've thought a lot about how God could, Jesus could be God and man. I've thought a lot about how a sacrifice could be effectual for me, but I haven't looked at the person and seen his great love. That that day of darkness that I deserve, that you deserve, he took it. What a glorious Savior and substitute. So the question we must ask ourselves, I ask you, as we look here at what Christ underwent, is will you drink this cup for yourself? Or will he drink it for you? This is that dark day, but the dark day is not the end of the story. The story continues, though there's much more in the, or a little bit more in the book of Mark. Here we see the beginning of the dawning of the light. And in this dawning day, there is first, as we already confessed, using our catechism, an offering. You might wonder, of course, there's many places in the New Testament that speak about how Christ offered himself. But I'd say that Mark has this in mind very clearly, and you might wonder, well, how do we get a sacrifice out of this? But Mark has pulled together one of his characteristic, um, what's often called a Markin sandwich, where he'll have a story, and he'll interrupt the story and then continue it. And the thing in the middle tells you the meaning of the story surrounding it. So here in these last verses, in, in 37 through 39, we hear that Jesus cried out with a loud voice and breathed his last. The temple veil was torn in two, and then the centurion, seeing him crying out and breathing his last, says, truly, this is the Son of God. This is all pulled together in Mark's retelling of the story, and it puts Jesus' work into the temple, into a sacrificial significance. So Jesus here is offering himself on behalf of his people. And first of all, this is a willing offering. Notice that Jesus Christ, again, I just spoke to you about how deep the woe of this moment was. And yet Jesus Christ in this moment has the strength to cry out with a loud voice. I mean, any other person undergoing these things, it would be a whimper to the end. But as our, our catechism says, why was it requisite that Jesus Christ be God? One of the reasons why is so that he could bear up under the awful load of God's wrath. None but the God-man could do that. And so right here, the Lord Jesus Christ, who said of himself, no one can take my life, but I willingly lay it down. He offers himself with the strength that he still has up to the Lord, breathing his last. So he's giving himself as an offering. I, one challenge to thinking about offerings is that I, I, we, we haven't actually read much of the Old Testament's description of what an offering is. And there's different facets to the sacrificial system. And here, we, we might think, well, this is Jesus Christ offering himself to cleanse us of sin. And it's true, he is offering himself to cleanse us of sin. But there's another offering that we need to think about when we see what Christ is doing, which is what's called the burnt offering or the ascension offering. And that offering was meant 
to be a spotless, perfect life that was completely burned up and given to God, a life perfectly consecrated, that the person who knew, who knew that they could never in their unholiness be perfect and consecrated to the Lord, they would lean upon this bowl and say, accept this instead of me. And the Lord Jesus Christ is our burnt or ascension offering in this moment. He offers his perfect life. And take a moment just to wreck it, to think about the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. But from the moment he was conceived, all throughout his childhood, while men were mocking and hating, all that he went through on the cross, that in no way did he sin against God or against his neighbor during this whole experience of pain and woe. A completely perfect human life being offered. And, and whereas we, we used to say, oh, oh Lord, accept this bull instead of me, it's pretty obvious that could never do the trick. What, what do I have to do with a bull? And thanks be to God that he accepted it on behalf of his people. But all along we knew the people of God should have known this isn't enough. We keep on offering over and over and over again so that God will accept us as pleasing in his sight. When is there going to be something good enough? And it had to be a human life. It had to be a perfect, spotless man. And the Lord Jesus Christ was that perfect and suitable offering. So as he offered himself, was God pleased with the Lord Jesus Christ, with this offering? Well, the answer for Mark comes in looking at the veil, seeing the veil torn in two, and we see that it's a pleasing offering because just as the heavens were rent at the beginning of the book of Mark, now the temple veil is rent, and we can assume the voice of the Lord calling out, this one is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And so this veil, which once separated the people of God from the holy place where he would make his dwelling has been opened. And this is far greater than the time before once a year the, the high priest should come in with another animal's blameless blood and represent the people, but only once a year could they come into the presence of the Lord, and he was pleased. You Sure, this is the, I'll accept this blood is pleasing. You can come into my presence. But now, that veil that could be opened once a year is definitively torn asunder and opened forever. The way to God opened. That means that there's an end to this old, repetitive, insufficient system. And now there is that most satisfying, most perfect offering that God is pleased with. And Christ has the, fulfilled that whole day of atonement. He's, he's gone off as the one goat into the wilderness, bearing away the sins of the people. And he, like that second goat, has gone into the, the dwelling place of God as a pleasing one. Well, that's wonderful for Christ. Christ was pleasing. Christ entered through this veil, but what about you? What about me? Does this avail anything for us? 
Well, this once offering of himself surely accomplished an opening of the way unto God. This temple was really, and this veil was really just a picture of what had always been going on in the whole cosmos. That Adam and Eve, our first parents, had rebelled against God and been sent away from his presence in Eden. And the cherubim blocked the way. And so the temple veil with the cherubim on it were always telling them, you cannot be in perfect fellowship with God. But now that that veil, the symbol of the separation, is torn, the actual separation has been torn asunder as well. And man, through the Lord Jesus Christ, can return to the presence of God. So that pronouncement that was on the Son, this is the one whom I'm well pleased with, he says that to all the people of God. All those who are in Christ Jesus can look through the torn heavens and hear him saying, you are my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And because of this, we can do what the writer of Hebrews talks about. Because of this work, he says, now through the blood or with the blood of Jesus, we can enter through the veil of his body and approach the throne of grace with boldness. We can enter into communion, restored communion with the living God. Return into Eden. Now, right now, we're gathered for worship to pray, to sing songs. Every time we open our Bibles and, and, and come before the Lord, we are taking advantage of that privilege. I wonder if you've stopped for a moment recently to think that Jesus Christ, the perfect burnt offering, the, the most glorious high priest, has brought me into the holy of holies, that right now we've come to Mount Zion to join in the festal gathering because of what Christ accomplished on the cross. The final part of this, this pulling together of ideas that Mark has is the centurion looking at Christ and seeing him cry out, and then pronouncing a confession that he is the true son of God. Well, what was it that the centurion was, was looking at? We, we get this cutaway to the temple veil, but G, Jesus is what he's looking at. And he sees, this is a centurion who has probably seen hundreds of crucifixions and knows the way it normally goes. And yet what he sees is the God-man, again, able to bear up under the weight of God's wrath, able to cry out in a loud voice. And as he sees this singular event, really what he's seeing is that priest offering himself as a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice. His own body a veil torn, the writer of Hebrews says. And so how is it then, him looking at this man dying, that he's able to give a confession that up until this point in the book of Mark, no one has said other than God himself and demons. No man in the book of Mark, Mark, Mark pushes those things to the side because he wants us to be so amazed at what this moment is that a pagan has a confession that truly this is the son of God. How, how is this possible? Well, it's possible in the same way that 
Peter's confession was in Mark, or sorry, Matthew chapter 16. Do you remember? He says, truly, or he says, you are the Christ, the Son of God. And what does Jesus say to Mark, or to Peter? He says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. So this centurion is not looking at a mere human event and able to understand the significance of it. But just as I said that Jesus Christ had opened a way for his people to enter into his presence, he also opened a way for all nations to enter into his presence. And the purpose of the temple is coming to fruition in this moment that Isaiah once prophesied in in the second chapter of his prophecy that all the nations would stream up to Mount Zion and they'd want to hear from the Lord. And here we have an enemy of God's people able to see who God really is and to see that this is the beloved son that we're supposed to listen to. This is a culminating point of history for what's going on with this centurion. That the way not only for the covenant people, but for all nations to come into the blessed presence of God and to say, truly, this God is my God. That's what's going on here in this glorious text in Mark chapter 15. I began by describing my own fears of the day of God's wrath. That day will come. That day of reckoning is sure in the future, and when it comes, it will be like what we've seen come upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And those who are strangers to the covenant of the Lord Jesus Christ, their smallest sin, if that's you, your smallest sin, is infinitely offensive to the eternal God and deserving of eternal deprivation from every gift you've ever had and dereliction from the grace that you've always known from God, even just as a creature. And know that nothing but you suffering in that way eternally could ever satisfy his divine justice. If you are still a stranger to the covenant, look at this Christ. Hear him calling to you and saying, keep your sins upon me. Let me be thrown into the darkness for you. Let me drink your cup of woe. And he will surely do it, and it will be sufficient, and there will be no wrath left for you. It will be completely satisfied upon him. Come to Christ if you have not. But for those of you who have held fast to the Lord Jesus Christ, realize all the benefits that you have here in this central work of our Lord. That you never have to fear that the Lord is going to come upon you with his wrath or curse because it's been completely poured out on his beloved son, our Savior. 
And in those moments when affliction comes upon you and you think, is God doing this because I'm being cursed? Have I done something wrong? Well, that would be to say that Jesus' work wasn't enough. Surely it was enough. And as you wrestle with sin and you hate your sin and you think, how could God ever accept me in his presence? Look at me. No, look at Christ. Look at him cleansing you. Look at him taking everything you deserve and it being perfect and definitive. But also realize what he did in his offering of himself as that pleasing, holy, consecrated, burnt offering that God said, this is the pleasing thing. This is a pleasing man. And now all your people can come into my presence in you and know the light of my countenance upon them. That's for you or if you are in Christ Jesus. We have been brought into his glorious, the glorious presence of the Father and of his Son, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. And all this, remember, because Jesus Christ was cast into our darkness that he might bring us into his light. Let us pray. Most merciful Father in heaven, we thank you for your Son and all that he accomplished. We thank you that from eternity past, out of your great love for us, you purposed a way that that the Son could take flesh and undergo our wrath and curse and so bring us into his glorious joy and inheritance by his righteousness. Let us never forget this and let us take great comfort. We pray that anybody who we know or even who is here who has not clung to this Savior, we pray that you would help them to see him and hold fast to him for his salvation. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.